Welcome to Mission Daily. This is producer Rachel Kanya. Today, Chad is joined by Kelly Leonard, Executive Vice President of The Second City, an improvisational comedy enterprise based in Chicago that produces work with some of the world's leading comedians, such as Stephen Colbert, Tina Fey, Steve Carell, Seth Meyers, Amy Poehler, and many others. On this episode, Chad and Kelly take a deep dive into improv, why it is the core of what it means to be human, and how we can use this practice to enhance our own creativity and connection with each other. Mission Daily is created by our team at mission.org. Kelly, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Where are you calling in from today? I am uh, in my office at the Second City in the Old Town neighborhood of Chicago. Very cool. So for all our listeners that are not familiar with Second City, how do you present it or describe it to people that have never heard of it? So like, I, I started out uh, here first as a dishwasher, but then I worked in the box office. Uh, so I had to do that, that a lot. So I would say to people... Um, if you've seen Saturday Night Live or Whose Line Is It any, Anyway, it's kind of a combination of that. And a lot of those people started at Second City. So the theater itself um, opened its doors in December of 1959. And we've kind of done the same thing, really, since then. Um, we do two acts of scripted uh, review comedy um, and then a third act that is completely improvised. We, we often improvise within the show itself a little bit, but we really utilize those improv sets as a way to craft and hone our material. Um, it is the learning that all the famous people who've come out of Second City, they've all studied at our school, learning that kind of uh, the improv structures. And probably one of the things we're most known for is since 1959 and up until the present day, we are kind of a factory for superstar comedy talent. So in the beginning, there's like everyone from Mike Nichols and Elaine May to Alan Arkin and Joan Rivers and Fred Willard and Robert Klein through Peter Boyle, Bill Murray, John Candy, Martin Short, Gilda Radner, um, Chris Farley, Tim Meadows, and then some of the more recent people, the folks that I hired at Second City and, and worked with, like Tina Fey and Keegan-Michael Key and Stephen Colbert and Steve Carell and Amy Sedaris and Amy Poehler. So really, I mean, it, it's, it's uh, and then current cast of Silent Lives, uh, Cecily Strong and A.D. Bryant um, are from Second City. So really, uh, it's this combination of sketch written content uh, and improvisation uh, that has been our hallmark as, as a theater and as a school um, and all the different kinds of businesses that we've spun off uh, in the ensuing years. Very cool. So I have a number of questions. I think the first one that I want to ask is, do you feel that that cadence of two thirds of your time being spent on scripted work and one third being sp spent on experimental or improvisational work is uh, a good way for creatives to structure their focus? That is an excellent question that no one has ever asked me before. And I do a lot of this stuff. <laughs> oh, uh, awesome. Yeah, I, I, I think there is a magic ingredient there. You know, part of the work that I do uh, now at the theater is, is I head up a whole insights division, um, which works with a lot of academics um, and academic institutions to kind of look at the science behind this stuff. And certainly there's a good amount of evidence uh, that speaks to sort of allocation of time, uh, all the ideas about, you know, taking breaks for peak performance and where you ramp up and then, you know, chill out. Uh, the, 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 the idea to be your full creative self, you also have to have some time where you can just daydream. But I do think that there, in comedy, there's a magic around threes. So there, there's this whole rule of three and, and you do something three times, that's you're going to laugh. You do it six times, you'll be okay, nine times. But when you do the odd numbers, it doesn't work. And I've seen this sort of tested out time and time again. And so I think that idea that you are um, saving space to experiment uh, as, as a significant part of your time, but not the whole time. So indeed, this, this idea that you don't want to spend all your time experimenting uh, in, in innovating, and this is what improvisation is. It's, it's sort of rapid prototyping of creative ideas and concepts and characters and lines. You need a good amount of that time to play around, but then you got to get to the business of honing and crafting your work. And, and I think one of the differences between our, what we do at Second City and many, many other comedy homes, I'll, I'll say, um, is that we are fiercely dedicated to improvisation as a way to get to content. So it, it is not only good enough to be a great improviser, you then have to translate then uh, to crafting that content in front of an audience, 
turning it into the best material it can possibly be. And that, that's a whole other skill. And, and again, you know, so many famous people have come out of here. And I think the, the one thing that ties them together is that they learned this craft, but then they applied it in front of real commercial houses. You know, we're kind of sold out every night and it's, you know, 300 people in, in our wow. main stage theater. And that's not, you know, that's not your friends. And, and you're, so you're, sure. you're not making your <laughs> friends laugh, right? You have to make the tourist who's sitting next to the businessman, who's sitting next to the artist, uh, who's sitting next to the 16-year-old. Uh, you have to find the connective tissue that's going to make them all laugh, you know, and really it's all about truth. That's, that's, what we're sure. that's what you're trying to get to and that's what people are laughing about. So if you strip away it a little bit, you're like, oh, okay, so if what you're doing on stage is rapid protein to get to truth, wouldn't that be useful to like everyone in every endeavor? Um, and I'd say indeed it is. And, and that's why our work has found its way into training business people, to training caregivers, to training educators. I mean, it's just like name the industry. If people have to work with other people uh, in order to be successful, then this improv stuff is really good uh, to be practiced at. Definitely. So Kelly, I'm calling you from Silicon Valley and a number of <laughs> companies we work with and uh, CEOs that uh, I know or know of assign uh, a number of different improv books to yep. key, key members of their team and executives. And it's something that in our culture is it's definitely starting to become viewed as like a high art. You know, it, it arguably always should have been. But in Silicon Valley now, there's this like underlying trend of uh, an interest in comedy. There are just yep. so many different things that people are worried about saying or people are worried about talking about. So for people who like comedy, it's great because we can go into this arena where, you know, we don't have to worry about getting docs. We don't have to worry about, you know, somebody seeing us laugh at something that might be a little bit too not safe for work or whatever the case is. So what do you see as like the role for improv uh, in the future of, you know, making life and business more humane? Well, I think, you know, and, and I do a lot of work. I get brought out to speak in Silicon Valley all the time. I, you know, I, we did all of Twitter when they got everyone together and I was at the Recode conference. And Very the cool. thing that I think is unique uh, about your world, but it, but it is, it, it is, it's the coming world, which is in a world where AI, where, where basically the robot narrative, uh, where our menial tasks and some of our very sophisticated tasks will be taken over by computers uh, or robots. What we will need, and I'm speaking about us humans, uh, is to be able to access the thing that is most human, the thing that is least robot, um, which is problem solving, which is storytelling, which is resilience and agility, change readiness, uh, which is collaboration and teamwork. You know, there's a reason that computers are not very good at improvising because they're all about finding uh, the, the pattern, the right pattern. And, and in comedy, in our work, it's about a pattern uninterrupted. Uh, a joke is just that, right? The joke is the thing you didn't see coming. Uh, it sure. is the surprise. Um, and so, you know, there's this, uh, a, there's a bunch of people who say it a different way, but it's, it's basically turning, you know, the aha into the haha or, or the other way around. You know, you can you can gather insights through through the making of comedy. So I, I, I really think why improvisation is so powerful is it's literally human being practice. It right. is getting in a room, making some eye contact, saying some words, uh, maybe saying gibberish and finding a way that we can understand each other, learn from each other. And then most importantly, um, co-create together, build together. That is not a natural act for us human beings. We are, you know, our, our brains have evolved in such a way where fight or flight is really still ingrained up there. And so we need not just like to be told to do it differently. Um, we need to experience doing it differently and then practice doing it differently in order to be uh, successful. And that's just going to become more true every year we venture into this world where you know, uh, suddenly my phone can do all these amazing things um, that a human being used to have to be around to do. Yeah, it's definitely an exciting time in comedy and in business and in technology and life, because I think for the first time, culturally, there are many Americans that are open to the idea that individuals or groups of people might have different interests, right? That they might do mm -hmm. something outside of work in the evenings that is completely different, whether it's performance art or anything art related. 
So I'm yeah. curious, you've had a unique vantage point over many decades in the industry uh, and in media and in entertainment. I'm curious if you could just kind of like take us back to the beginning of when you got started and yeah. kind of like what led you to this field? And was there was there a moment? Was there uh, a series of challenges? Uh, I would love to hear your story. Yeah. So um, I kind of decided in college that I wanted to be a playwright. Um, uh, my dad had been a theater reviewer and, and prior to uh, becoming a media figure here in Chicago, he did TV and radio. Um, he had acted on stage and so did my mom. Uh, so we had sort of a, a, a family that loved theater. And then I was writing plays in college and getting a fair amount of attention for them. And so when I graduated, my dad's like, well, I can't get you a job. I can probably set up some informational interviews. And so I met with Rock Schulfer, who still leads the Goodman Theater here in Chicago, a world-renowned theater. And then Bernie Salins, who was the co-founder of Second City. He had sold Second City some years back, about five years back before that. This is 1988. Uh, but he still had, uh, uh, obviously, friends here. And he was starting his own theater. And he basically said, hey, I'll, I'll make you a production assistant at my theater. It doesn't start for six months. Let me call over to Second City and get you a job there. And so literally, like, I, I, I came up on a Friday night. I was told to report. I, I assumed I would be, like, working in the marketing division or something. And, no, they took me back to the kitchen, and I was a dishwasher, <laughs> which is, man, it was the that was, worst job. That was my first job was uh, dishwashing yeah. and busing tables before I got fired. Right. Yeah. It's not good. Um, and the back bar in those days at Second City was filled with, you know, sociopaths and alcoholics, <laughs> um, these sort of brilliant idiots. Uh I will say the other guy hired that week as a dishwasher. We both had mullets was the film director, John Favreau. Uh, so Johnny Favs and me uh, uh, doing the dishwashing. And, and so one of the things I did not, I had come to Second City. I was, I, I was in love with comedy. I did not know that Second City had an improvisational pedagogy that was so important to its work. What was ironic about that was I was steeped in improvisation in every other facet of my life. I was a deadhead. I loved jazz music. I did my thesis in college on spontaneous jazz writing of the beat generation. I was a soccer player, and I, I, mean, I had those 90s Bulls teams, which moved so incredibly improvisationally inside the triangle. Offense. They really did. So, yeah. So, I, like, it, so then finding out, I'm like, oh, this is improv too. And, and so, you know, we'd watch the shows and like the people on stage at that time were Bonnie Hunt, Jane Lynch, Joel Murray, Billy's little brother, and then Chris Farley and Tim Meadows were in the touring company. And you'd go and you'd see what they're doing. and It would, it would like feel like magic. And then I'm like, oh, God, this isn't magic. This is actually a practice that, that these people have you know, evolved over time. Oh, Mike Myers was in that cast. It's funny, I forgot him. So then I worked in the, uh, the seating the room and worked in the box office and then left to go work for Bernie's Theater, which failed miserably after like three months. So I found my way back here. And I was writing plays uh, during the day or night that I wasn't working. And then I was working and I was submitting my plays around town and I was making friends here. And then in 1992, by this time, I am the director of sales, I'd like invented this position out of the box office and I was assisting our uh, executive producer, Angela Alexander. And the woman who was our legendary producer at that time, Joyce Sloan, had had a series of really health scares um, and couldn't, couldn't really do the demands of the job. But there was no, we were such a mom-pa operation, there was no, um, no one was in place to take that job. And I, I mean, I will never, I was 26 years old. Uh, Andrew calls me in his office. He's like, I want to offer you the job of like associate producer of the second city. I'm like, you are punking Like the, you are, this is, can't be true. Uh, Cause I'm completely not qualified for this. It was su such a lucky thing for me because it, it, with, with zero expectations in a time where it's not like we weren't doing budgets, we weren't, no one was looking at, sales in a certain way. I mean, like, you know, they would look at the month, but no one was breaking stuff out. Right. I had, I had this like clean slate to just kind of play at being a leader and figure out the business. And I had some hunches that turned out to be correct. And I, and, but the, the key, I think to all of that looking back was I always put my relationships first, which meant that I valued the people above me, below me, next to me, 
I respected the artists and knew how to speak in their language, but I was not uncomfortable in part because of the, I'm the youngest of six, grew up in this, you know, high, fairly high profile family in Chicago. And I was fine talking to bankers and I was fine talking to media people. And, you know, so I think that ability to recognize that if you can build trusting relationships and if you're smart enough to listen and surround yourself with people who are brighter than you are, you can kind of do anything. Uh, you know, the other stuff, you know, comes and goes. But, you know, my, my first cast was Steve Carell, Stephen Colbert, and Amy Sedaris. I mean, kind of hard to fail uh, <laughs> when you've that, got that group. Um, and then I'm married well. You know, my, my wife, Anne, it runs the first ever BA of comedy and writing and performance in the country at Columbia College, which has a, also a junior and senior uh, year program called Comedy Studies that's uh, tied to the second city. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're steeped in this, you know, I, I think looking back, I've always been curious. And I think that, um, that is something that everyone should value more is their own innate curiosity and where it can lead them. But yeah, the gift of being able to fail a lot and to make discoveries and, and hire well, right. I mean, right. you know, get, get the best possible people, Sometimes you, and, and this is another thing, like, you know, I, I, I wrote a book called Yes And in 2015, and that was very much about how we take our improv principles into businesses. And one of the things that we talk about in the book is this, the importance of diversity inside your ensembles, that you really want to, um, you will benefit if your teams have uh, a lot of people with a lot of different viewpoints, which means there's going to be friction. Um, and you have to learn as, as a leader how to manage that friction so that it is successful and creative rather than toxic. Um, and that, that can be not easy, but it, if you have sort of a, tr if everyone has a true North star and this is the great thing about improv, there, there, there's just so, so much stuff we can lean on, which is like in improv, you have to make your partner look good. You have to be focused on others needs. If you do all that stuff and it can even be lip service, you don't even have to effing believe it. It's fine. Just, but just do it. Say yes and instead of no. Uh, uh, focus on, uh, on the others. Seed your need to be right. If you do all that, you will do good work uh, inside your team or your ensemble. I guarantee it. I've seen it. I mean, we've been open 60 years. It's our 60th anniversary year. And we've never not had a hit show. We've never closed. All the shows run into one another. And take, take a minute and realize, I'm not talking about us just running greatest hit shows because we don't do that. Every single show on the resident stage at Second City is an original piece of work. So I, I don't think you can name for me another commercial entity that has been successful for this long only doing original work. There is something incredible in that dynamic. And, 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 and I know what it is. And it is improvisational practice put into the creation of commercial content. As simple as that. There's other stuff that goes on that makes it work. The environments, the behaviors, all that. But really, that's it. And, and that's, that can be a microcosm for, for any company when you're looking at, like, what do you do? How do you do it? And how are you successful at it? Sure. And it sounds like, you know, across the course of your business career and getting started and then following those hunches that panned out in the beginning, you were kind of an expert at building partnerships, whether it was with, yeah. you know, your wife or with that first cast or really with, you know, so many different stakeholders that are vital to supporting Second City. So I'm curious, you know, when you got started, you mentioned you didn't feel qualified for the job. What mm -hmm. gave you the courage to keep going? Was it like, you know, early lessons from your parents? Did the fact that you saw them taking courageous artistic risks, being actors and things like that, what led you to have the courage to just, you know, go for it and start building all those partnerships? A little bit of arrogance and people who work with me <laughs> might say a lot of arrogance, a little bit of luck and others might say a lot of luck, but also at Second City, there literally is a framework for jumping into, for basically making something out of nothing together. As you were asking the question, I was like, huh, let me actually seriously consider this. I know one of the things early on that I did was I got out of the building. Um, so there's a, a Harvard uh, professor, Gary Pisano, who talks about in the sort of innovation field, we have to be care careful of home court syndrome. Um, when you know you're successful and you're really successful at home, and you end up never leaving home, and then one day you find that you know innovation has passed you by. So I was an early 
advocate inside like the League of Chicago Theaters, which meant I was starting to uh, meet and collaborate and talk to the people who led all the various theaters and building those relationships and, and, and then, you know, travel, um, you know, making sure I'm getting out and seeing everything different people are doing, whether it's, you know, out of, out of state, out of, out of country, or even visiting the sort of danky theaters in Chicago and see who's doing exciting, cutting, cutting edge work. So success begets success, right? So, you know, we started doing collaborations on the theatrical side with, um, uh, groups like Chicago Shakespeare Theater or Hubbard Street Dance or the Toronto Symphony. And we realized that, you know, um, or Lyric Opera, that was a huge one that I, I, Renee Fleming and I helped develop a thing called the Second City Guide to the Opera. When she came to a show, <laughs> she came to a show and uh, heard her own recordings being illegally sampled in the context <laughs> of the show. And she goes backstage to our musical director who's like sweating like the guy in an airplane. Uh, and she's like, I'm not here to sue you. I'm interested in collaborating. And <laughs> they, they had my card back there. It's like, you got to call Kelly. And, and what we talked about was, you know, she was at that point a consultant for uh, the Lyric Opera uh, uh, here in Chicago. And she's trying to... Uh, find ways to develop new audience. And she was looking around our audience. She's like, your audience is like 50 years younger than the opera audience. And, and she goes, and, and when I heard my voice, I'm like, oh, wait, that works with the material here. And so we you know, got funding to play for a year. What we sort of decided is like, we can't, this isn't going to work if it's just like some commissioned work. We have to, we have to be in each other's uh, worlds. We have to you know, sort of live in the bones of the art form. And sure. we did that and made this incredible collaboration that turned into a, it was a two night sold out gala hosted by Sir Patrick Stewart and Renee turned into a multi-year run as a cabaret show and then led to other stuff that we collaborated on over the years. So I think this idea of get out of your home court, build relationships across different platforms, different media, you know, who, who else can you play with? So I'll get a, a good example. So I, I did that for the theatrical side for years and then after I wrote my book and I was sort of like trying to figure out what was next for me, we had had this fire at Second City where the theater was saved by the Chicago Fire Department. But my office and the corporate division's office and the accounting division's office, those were all destroyed. So I got kicked, you know, out of the building and stuck in this like terrible rental office complex. I won't name the name Regis. They, were just, they would <laughs> yell at us for laughing too much. I mean, it was just so Oh terrible. man, God forbid anybody but, uh, like their jobs. Yeah. But yeah, so, but, but what I real, realized is I talk a lot about how discomfort is an important part of uh, creative work and innovation. And so I was sure. jammed in an office with the corporate division of all places. And, and they're like, hey, like, you know, if you were to do something with us, what would you do? Uh, and indeed, what that led to was building collaborations, but for the group that brings the content and improv to the business world. And so one of the first things I did was uh, uh, collaborate with the Center for Decision Research at the Booth School of Business at the University of Chicago. And my friend Heather Crusoe, uh, who I met there, is a behavioral scientist. And we created a thing called the Second Science Project, which looks at behavioral science through the lens of improvisation. So now we're jamming with academics and saying, you know, what evidence do you have for this thing that we do? And what a phenomenon are you studying that perhaps we can create an improvisational exercise for to get underneath? And so we do research, we do executive education programs, and it's been an incredibly rich way to reimagine what the work can be. And you mentioned Silicon Valley earlier. I started hosting a podcast uh, of myself called Getting the SN, where I would interview different kind of art, uh, artists and thought leaders and academics about their work. And I had on Kim Scott, who wrote the terrific book, Radical Candor, about her experience at Google and Apple and this, this basically this feedback grid that she'd created. And I gave it to my wife. I'm like, you got to read this book. This is stunning stuff. Well, lo and behold, over the conversation and then more conversations later, we're now collaborating with Kim and we've got this new product coming out, which is called Improvising Radical Candor. Um, where we, we already created these live workshops that we teach together, but now we're creating these digital assets so that, you know, you can basically take uh, the workshop that was live in the room for 50 people and give it to 50,000 people, or at least elements of it. And so, again, it, it, is, it is not unlike what we were doing on the theatrical side of the building. We're good collaborators. That's what improv makes you. And so then all you have to do is find really cool people to collaborate with. Very cool. So Kelly, I'm curious, as you're going about your uh, day-to-day job and as you're building the future of the business, 
it's clear that you're highly motivated to do this work, right? Like you wouldn't uh, pick something else or you're not thinking about like retirement or your second career. (laughs) No, maybe you are, but uh, (laughs) you're clearly, uh, this is a case where the work and the artist and the business person, you know, it's like kind of like, it sounds like a match made in heaven. I'd be curious to know, you know, was it always like that? Um, was it always a situation where you wanted to keep going? Have there been any dark nights of the soul? Absolutely. I mean, that, that's just, you know, there are, there's many inflection points where I thought, uh, I guess this is it, this is it time to go. (laughs) Um, or I made a colossal mistake and got yelled at and I'm like, Oh, all right. And or or, you know, I mean, walking into the theater, you know, on, on nine 11, when we were supposed to open a show, called embryos on ice or fetus don't fail me now on 912 uh in realizing completely irrelevance you know and and then how is the business going to recover and and it 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 does and it did at this point it's funny we're we're, an invitation just came out yesterday that we all got internally because it'll be my 31st anniversary in october and we didn't get to celebrate my 30th um because i wasn't around uh dealing with a, a family medical crisis so you know this and this picture of me at 24 which my son who's 22 it looks like him more than it actually looks like me and you know i'm like yeah I, you know i'm here this is i mean at this point it would be like ridiculous to leave, you know to leave and, and and i love it i don't think things are preordained i don't think there's such a thing as fate i think there are lots of accidents and, and mistakes that if one can lean into them they can turn them into gifts sure. uh and i think i think that's what happened with me here i think Every time it got uncomfortable for me and it felt like mm, maybe it's time to go, it required me to figure out the way that I stay. And that means you dig for meaning and purpose. And so that was always there. That wasn't going to be a problem. I work hard. That's not going to be a problem. But allowing yourself to sort of, you know, see it differently or allow. And I got to give props to Andrew Alexander, our owner. He always challenged me. I mean, he. He would basically, the minute I got really comfortable and good at something, he'd kick me out of it and say, do something different. And I'm like, wait a second. I just want to bathe in the glory of the thing I created. <laughs> like, why can't I do that? Sure, and yeah. I realized now it was like, no, no, that's not who you are. You, you need now to get your hands dirty and be frustrated for a while. And then you'll come out the other end with something. And so, you know, that, that's, I think, how it, how it works. At least that's how it worked for me. And then, you know, it, it also helps that it's a little bit of a family business, certainly for the Alexanders and, and the Stewarts who own it, who, whose families are very entwined here, and mine. I mean, my, my wife's office is just about, you know, 10 feet away from me, right where I'm sitting right now. And my son worked uh, here in the box office over, over the summer. And, you know, it's a little bit of legacy. But also the thing I love about it is Second City is not about resting on its laurels. And it's not about what was happening yesterday. We can crow about the achievements of the alumni. But the work that's being done right now is by the next group of like, 24 to 29 year olds who think and feel and operate very differently than my generation or even the generation before. So you kind of get it's almost like a tech upgrade. You're, you're, cons- uh, you're consistently, as you, as you age at Second City, if you remain open to it, allowing, allow your own thinking to upgrade culturally to be at least be in touch and understand with what makes this next generation tick. And that's a really special, that's a special gift, I think. Definitely. So I'm curious, just to shift gears for a moment. Yeah. So obviously, you know, creatives, we have our own uh, neurosis and everything like that. And for many of us, we're trying to find that right balance between maybe two thirds time uh, scripted and one third time unscripted in our creative life. And for a lot of us who are introverts and sometimes the type of work required to do the two thirds part, uh, that scripted work can be yeah. so exhausting that you know you you don't really get to a place where you're maybe in the mood for improv and yep. I know that you know you can't wait for the mood to strike and everything like that um but for any creatives out there that are kind of like going through that struggle right now what are some ways that you've kind of got yourself out of those uh funks or out of those situations where you know you just felt like you just didn't have the energy or the will to get up there and uh you know do something that's unscripted yeah so you, you talked about sort of waiting for inspiration to, to strike. That's a, that's a myth. It's a myth. It's a myth. It doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, you need to create a practice for yourself to do your art. And if that means you, you know you're going to 
set aside three hours for writing and you end up writing a paragraph, that's it, fine. You've written the paragraph. The worst thing you can do is not do the art. And right. over and over again, I see people make so many different excuses to not do their creative work. I mean, I've got, I've got a 22-year-old. He's a senior in college. Um, he's got a beautiful singing voice. He can act, he can improvise, he can write, uh, he's directed a little bit. And he, I, I witnessed this conversation between him and his mom where he's like, well, so, you know, what do I do? And, and she's like, you do the work. And by the way, the thing, the thing about, um, uh, the industry now is that no one just identifies as a writer or an sure. actor. Yeah. I mean, it, every, it's, it's, it's polymaths across the board. You want to be able to walk in a room and be able to do any of the jobs should those jobs be available. And by the way, what you also want to do is not wait around for someone to cut you a check. You want to do the work. And if that means, you know, uploading your own videos or writing pieces and sending them out to get put up, you do that. And this is the thing that I live in the world where I often say the words, both things can be true. So um, here's a both things can, can be true. Artists deserve and should be paid for their work. Um, but there is not a world that has ever been lived in where someone who is newly becoming an artist is waiting for a check to do their art. Um, <laughs> great painters yep. started painting. Uh, great improvisers start improvising. The value um, wasn't captured or created until many, many years later. Sometimes many after years. You, yeah, after you, they died. Do, you do it and you do it publicly in spaces yeah. and, and, then, and then you get paid. So again, you, it, both things are true. You need to do that work um, and then you need to be paid for that work. So you shouldn't let yourself be taken advantage of. And I mean, people are all, I, I, I like, I have worked here, so 60, 60 years old, I've worked here 31 of those years. In, all, in every year I've worked here, Someone has called me who's wanted us to do stuff for free for good exposure. I'm like, I don't, what are you talking about? Like we have, we have the best exposure already. Pay yeah. us for our work. And then I also worked here for 31 years and realized that all the new artists who are coming in and starting here are doing free improv all over the city of Chicago. I really do think that, you know, you have to create a practice for yourself to not just do the work, uh, but do the work and then share the work. You know, and then there's other stuff after that. But if you start from there and you have gifts, I'm pretty sure you're going to you're going to get get somewhere. Definitely. And I mean, you're going to get faster feedback. Right. And yep. I, I think for anyone listening too, it's like if you look at the services and products that you buy on a daily basis, you typically encountered them in some type of freemium fashion or you didn't have to pay until after you got the experience. Right. And uh, it's up to the person delivering the experience how much effort or how much practice they want to put into it to turn it into art. And yep. um, it's, you know, it's a marketplace that just because somebody's Uber driving or whatever, like that's, you know, that's prime time for improv or it's prime time for sure is. maybe taking some uh, conversational risks. And the worst thing that's going to happen is, you know, you're going to drive for Lyft or whatever the next day. Yep. And, and that's, uh, I think the sharing economy has opened up some opportunities for people because there's no longer an excuse that, you know, the worst case scenario is you're going to end up working in the sharing economy, which might be right. rough, but compared to some of the things I'm sure you saw creatives doing coming up to make ends meet, is it that bad? Or, you know, is it, are we living in a, in a golden age for creators? What do you think? I'm not going to call it a golden age because I think that, you know, one of the things that I know about uh, creative work is that uh, it, it, it actually thrives in constraint. Sure. Um, it, it, it sort of, you know, sometimes it's like, that's the stuff that actually makes, there's a great story, uh, that Tim Harford, uh, tells, um, he's a British writer and it's about, uh, Keith Jarrett, who is the a renowned, both classical and jazz pianist. And he has this famous album, uh, called the cold concert. And it was, it's the, it's the best selling solo jazz, uh, album of all time amazing improvised piece of, of art. I listened to it all the time growing up. And Harford uh, tells a story, which I did not know about the making of that album, which was that when Jarrett showed up in Köln, Germany to do the concert, uh, this teenage girl uh, was in charge and the piano was just broken. The pedals uh, were really hard to get to work. The ends of both, the high and the low, were not working. And he's like, I'm not going on. And she begged him. 
and, she, and she basically he said, okay, do you have the recording equipment that I asked for as part of my writer? She says, yes, we do. He goes, okay, I'm going to do the concert. You're going to record it, and I'm going to take that recording and give it to every single person before they book me to show them what will happen if, you know, this, if I'm handed this crap, you know, piano. So he goes out, and he does the concert. And Jarrett realizes he does want to entertain the audience in front of him, so he starts hammering on the pedals and he's playing in the middle of the instrument where it's the most melodious and he created a great album that was a complete surprise um and the thing i love about that is like oh it was actually these you know constraints he couldn't have imagined that allowed him to then find something new so i think that when you look at sort of past cultures and different decades you know we all have these sort of monsters that we're, we're dealing with and trying to get by. And what the creative people do is figure out a way to use them to their advantage. Um, and I don't think that in humankind, I don't think that that changes. And, and, and we never know until, you know, we're looking in the rearview mirror 50 years, 60 years, 100 years to see, you know, how creative we were, we were. But I do think this generation has that opportunity as much as past generations. Yeah, it's, it's such an important lesson for creatives because like the example you mentioned, when those opportunities come up, when you're playing hurt or in suboptimal conditions or whatever, that's when you have new material that you would not have voluntarily chosen. How do you go about not letting resentment build up, but just translating that into art or processing it or whatever you consider it? Um, How do you go about doing that? I mean, it requires a few things. You have to, I mean, one is gratitude. So Living with gratitude, especially when things are, are going poorly, is hard. But ultimately, um, you recognize that without great suffering, great joy wouldn't exist. You know, I mean, like anyone can anyone who's fallen in love can relate to this. Right. You know, you, you, it, it, it can be the worst thing you've ever experienced and the best thing that's ever experienced. And if your choice is to go through that or never love, I mean, I'm, I, count me yeah. out. Like I, I'm going to go through the, the tough stuff. And that's just life. So one, being able to sort of lean into, I'm going to be grateful for this, and then not falling into isolation. So the yeah. other thing that's, that's hugely important is maintaining connection. So you know those times where you just want to curl up under a blanket and hide from the world, and sometimes you need to do that for a little bit, you got to get the blanket off, you got to push yourself out. And you've got to meet other people where they are. Um, and this is, you know, the, you know, introverts are w- widely misunderstood. And, and, and in fact, that, that what they really do is after they're, you know, out in public with people, they need to recharge. And, you know, someone like myself, who is the, my, my wife is an introvert. I am the opposite, obviously. Uh, I get charged by being out with people. But then also I need time to then, you know, like simmer down a, a, after mm. that occurs. Yeah, I hate going to parties. I mean, it's just like, but you know, we, we all we all experience life in different ways. So I think uh, gratitude and connection, and then we have a, a phrase in improvisation: play the scene you're in, not the scene you want to be in, uh, which is about staying present in the moment, not catastrophizing about the future um, or the past. Uh, recognizing that if we can, you know, and this is there's a very sort of mindfulness aspect to this. If we can really stay present where we are right now with gratitude, with connection, um, we can weather a lot of storms. So after you weather that storm and uh, as a creative, you're starting to have success. I'm sure one of the things that you've noticed is for creatives, you know, often you go through a period or maybe even a decade where, you know, you're making minimum wage or less uh, or maybe no money for, for time periods. And all of a sudden you're able to sell a creative project or you're able to find someone or a sponsor or a patron to finance a project and you actually have money for the first time. Uh, Creatives aren't the best at managing money, I've heard. Are there any uh, stories or um, pieces of wisdom that you can share for creatives who are approaching or maybe at a project where they have more money for the project than they ever thought they would and you know they want to do good for the sponsor, um, they want to do good for themselves? Uh, Any tips for how to avoid those landmines? Yeah, don't don't handle the money. Uh, I mean, literally, <laughs> literally, go get someone else to handle the money. I mean, I don't handle my my wife handles our money. I do not. I, I should not be allowed anywhere near it. Um, and even at Second City, like I can name it is I can name you like ten women uh, who have worked with me who've been my sort of second in command 
because uh, I prefer working with women over men, and they were really good with money, and they were good with, you know, organization. Um, and then I was able to sort of do what I do best in a room. So, I mean, it's like, you, you know, like the, the idea of the well-rounded uh, individual, also a myth. We are not all good at everything. And like you could put me in a class and I would still like, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to be okay at this. So it is okay. You should focus your people uh, so that 90% of their time, they're doing what they're good at. Recognizing that 10% of the time, they probably got to do mediocre work in another aspect uh, that someone else can't pick up. It's really, really important. Don't try to be something that you aren't, uh, especially when it comes to the financial stuff, because that's hugely important. Um, you know, in terms of your own making sure it looks, we're all fighting scarcity in some way or another scarcity of time, um, scarcity of relationships, but scarcity of, of means. And, and, you know, like I'm not gonna be able to do good work for you if I can't eat and I'm not gonna be able to do good, good uh, work for you if I'm worried about the fact that I've got to retire at some point and I don't have the money. So, you know, getting help. And there are people out there who do this kind of work, who manage people's uh, money and, and, and help them basically live in a way uh, where they can really be their most creative self, as opposed to being like the worst accountant uh, for the greatest artist ever. And yeah, excellent points. Uh, so my wife is our COO here at the business uh -huh. and we're a small team, uh, 15 people, uh, several contractors growing rapidly. And we're starting to think about comedy more. So I'm, I'm curious, have you worked with many creative shops or companies that maybe have done very well in original content in other areas that are interested in moving into comedy? And if so, is this something that you like cringe when you hear? Is it exciting for you? Um, any, any advice for us as we start to dip our toes into those waters? Yeah, so we we work with a ton of, a ton of companies, primarily who want to uh, who recognize that comedic storytelling, comedic content is very sticky. There's a reason that the Super Bowl commercials are seventy percent comedy ads, um, because there's so much evidence out there of um, how comedy cuts through the noise. Good comedy, but it's good comedy that cuts through the noise. Uh, so I often say, first and foremost, uh, don't practice comedy without a license. Um, it is so many people think they can do it. Um, and those are the people who send out that terrible tweet that then, you know, sends them into a PR tailspin. You do want to uh, work with experts in the medium who know the difference uh, between what is a good joke on Twitter, uh, what is representative of uh, a piece of storytelling that might work better on YouTube uh, to something that is better in an audio medium uh, or a live medium. Uh, they're all different. The thing that's the classic story around this was about, I don't know, 10 years ago or so, uh, this ethics group showed up. They did ethics and compliance work, um, and they had this idea around creating sort of live training models, and we do a lot of that work. And uh, we talked to them, and the, the, the fit wasn't exactly right, but it led us to develop this product called Real Biz Shorts, um, where we created really funny, short digital content that was there to support the ethics and compliance training uh, that everyone had to take at all these different businesses. And we're talking about everything from like banks to insurance houses to legal, you know, er people have to take this, this training. Um, it's really boring, um, but it's really important. And this became like a multi-million dollar business for us because comedy is most often needed where it's the least expected. And certainly compliance training, <laughs> no one is expecting comedy. Um, and, and that's why it works so well. So often when we get in a rut of like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do next? Or like, what would be a cool area to think? It's like, start thinking of all the places that no one would expect us to be. Yeah. Where is the least likely place? Because first of all, that's going to be a fun phone call to make. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and likely there's really fertile ground. So it's a, uh, I, I was, I interviewed an author uh, the other day uh, around innovation. And they told the story about in World War II, they were trying to figure out when planes would get shot down, um, uh, why and what could they do to better enforce the planes to not be shot down. So what they would do is that planes that would make it back, uh, they would study where the bullet holes were. And they were often looking at like, okay, well, let's reinforce these areas and let's do that. But it never correlated to success. It never correlated that they were, they were doing things right. So they brought in this guy from a completely different field. I think he was a statistician or whatever. And they're like, this guy's smart. Just come in for the day and look at this. And, and he could like showed up with five minutes. He, he said, 
you guys, you shouldn't be re reinforcing where the bullet holes are. You should be reinforcing where they aren't because these are the planes that survive. And I was just like, oh, that is amazing. It, it really is sort of getting out of your own bubble uh, to sort of look at what isn't or look at what is. And, and often we are bad at that, especially the more success we have. So especially for successful people, you have to find ways to um, look at the world differently, recognizing that just because this pattern worked for you right now doesn't mean it's going to work for you in every medium, in every context, or in every year because life changes. Um, so that, that's something I, I was really taken with that story because I think it illustrates so well that point. I love that. Yeah, I love that story. And so as a, as a veteran, as somebody who's creative, I've you know, written books, done things, built this company. And it's been a struggle along the way, not with other people, but it's, of course, you know, always with myself at the end yeah. of the day. And in connecting and in working with other creatives, it's, it's very exciting now because as the team grows, you know, you get to choose people who you would want to be friends with anyways. So it's, yep. you know, it's really exciting. And uh, there are a number of other people on the team that I would say are, you know, just as good, if not way better than me at being a creative or creating in different mediums. And it's really exciting. However, it's clear that, you know, obviously all of us came to the table with our own baggage, right? So yeah. as creatives who are trying to create together, uh, is there any advice you have for helping creatives understand each other maybe? And because, yeah. you know, you don't want to just jump into, well, here's all the trauma and crap I've been through. What have you been through? Um, right. How, how do you get there and, you know, be patient along the way of discovering who other people are so you can, you know, relate with them better? So uh, very specifically, um, we were hired by the University of Chicago to develop um, their orientation workshops for every incoming freshman based on uh, ideas around uh, implicit bias, uh, on what we knew about the way people sort of quickly size up other people. Uh, how they, uh, you know, tribe up and stereotypes and that sort of thing. And so one of the very first exercises, or the, the first exercise we do in this program um, is we have uh, a group of freshmen, let's say there's like 25 in a room, they get in a circle, and then the uh, instructor basically says, look, I'm going to read out a prompt. If you identify with that prompt, just move to another place in the circle. And so first she says, I am someone who's wearing jeans. And then she says, I am someone who identifies as a straight woman. Uh, I'm uh, someone who identifies as Catholic. Um, I identify as a hunter. I'm, I identify as vegan. I uh, identify as pro-life. And then what happens slowly over time, you're like, wait a sec, the vegan is pro-life and from you know, Chicago. And like, you, you just recognize that these people who you probably made a stereotype on the first time they moved or the second time they moved contain multitudes. Yeah. yeah. So this was just, you know, and, and then we, we sort of unpack the, the evidence and the insights and the academic papers that this stuff all comes from. And I remember the end, by the end of that workshop, all these people are trading their emails with each other and they're very unlikely friends, right? But sure. they just experienced the sort of intimate sharing of details. And what the science tells us is that we do think other people don't want to hear the details of our life, but they do. And what it also does is requires, it also makes us tribe up more quickly. So this is a really uh, uh, interesting way to bring groups of people together um, and start unpacking their assumptions. And I'll bet you that this would even be true with people who work together for five years. You know, yeah. like how much do we really know? Exactly. You know, yeah. And yeah. So, so I, I, that, I just loved that exercise. And I think it's such a great example of a practical lived way um, we can experience another person's full being. That's so cool. Yeah, I definitely agree. Kelly, when you were writing the book, Yes, And, how long did that process take? Were you compiling notes for years? And what was the <laughs> no. genesis of that book like? Yeah, so uh, it, this is how that went down. There was a, a woman who was very briefly in charge of Second City, but managed to sell a book deal to uh, HarperCollins. Um, but then she left the company um, and, the, and, the, and she wasn't about to write the book. And, you know, and so, so we got asked uh, by our owner, my collaborator, Tom Yorton and I, um, so I was running the theater side of business. Tom was running the corporate side of the business. Uh, we met, we flew to New York, met with the publisher, totally hit it off. And she, she was like, well, tell me your idea for a book. And we sort of said, well, on the plane, we came up with this idea orienting around the yes and principle of improvisation. And she's like, great, go write the book. So then Tom and I 
took a year uh, to write a really bad version of the book uh, where she says, great, you wrote the really bad version of the book. Now go write the good version of the book. Uh, so it took about a year and a half um, and a, a lot of rewrites. And, and, and actually the, the thing that was most surprising to me is, you know, I was a creative writing a business book and I thought I needed to speak in business speak. And she's like, tell your stories. Your stories will end up uh, I guarantee you finding its way into a business book. So I was able then be like, oh, okay, I got tons of stories that I can talk about. And indeed, that I think that's what made the book interesting for people because it was an unlikely source of insight that could be layered into the corporate work that Tom was so uh, you know uh, acquainted with. And I know this now, hosting the podcast, that you know I I do I've done the, about where where are we at like about 200 interviews. And so I read all these business books and I can tell the ones that are like, here's the 10 point stance for something. Um, and they're fine. They sell well. But then the, the ones that really come to life is where I'm, I'm the author is speaking of their experience. Sure. Um, you know, the, and their mistakes and their, and their fiascos. Um, and those are the ones that are the best because it's like, oh, great. I get to know you and I get to know your insights. And then my, my biggest question then is like, all right, is this supported by actual evidence or is this your opinion? Right. And I, this is the, this is where university of Chicago has uh, rubbed off on me, which is like, I'm less interested in your opinions uh, unless they're backed up by evidence. So that's a, the, I, I'm a guy who reads footnotes now. Uh, and that was not the case, you know, for Kelly Leonard five years ago. Kelly, that brings up a really interesting point because uh, for many creatives who are creating or writing alone or, maybe who have just like adventured out in the world, but just like got some direct experience that is, um, you know, maybe very different as a creative, obviously you're just running an experiment where it's an N of one and it's yep. very, very difficult to, you know, collect evidence along the way or mm -hmm. to, you know, keep pop polishing your creative work until you can, you know, have proof maybe of yep. how it's going to do in the marketplace or how, how it's already doing or whatever. So as you're going about that process of like, gathering proof or creating a vision for your creative project, how do you go from an N of one to, uh, you know, a hypothesis that professionals are going to respect? It's hard, right? I mean, I, I, look, I don't think it's the artist's job necessarily to then go back and compile the evidence. I think, I think, you know, again, that this is why we love our collaboration, which is to my earlier point, which is, the, you know, the artist shouldn't be the accountant. The artist doesn't need to be the scientist. Go find a scientist, you know, yeah. if, if you need that. And not everyone need, needs that either, um, right. you know, but, but the insights are out there, right? So, so one of the things that um, we talk a lot about, uh, we talk a lot about at Second Science Project is, you know, the reality is almost all science replaces itself. So almost all science ends up being untrue at some point and then replaced by something else. Sure. Um, and what we also know is that just because you have evidence that this phenomenon exists in this, this way that you tested this thing, there are just eons of different contexts that, that could render that untrue in another, yep. in another you know, world. So, so science ain't perfect either. There's definitely like a, there's a hunch aspect uh, to all of this. So what we're really trying to do and we think we've hit a sweet spot with it, which is what is the best evidence? What is the, the most, what is the most cutting edge insights that we've got from academia that when paired with improvisational practice, the, the idea of testing it out, so we test out the evidence. If we can just give people wisdom to improvise with, hmm. um, then they're going to be able to make those leaps and changes in their variety of contexts. They're going to be like, I tried it this way with this, and I tried it this way with that. I think this situation is kind of, you know, let, let's go that way. So it really is all about, you know, it's the best we have at the moment, and then we've practiced. And if we've practiced with our wisdom, then I think we're going to probably do okay in the world. Wise words, yeah. And I think it's important, everything you just said, to reflect on, I'm going to go back and re-listen to this interview. This has been awesome. But something you said, I think, is so important about science, and it's generally about phenomena that can be re repeatedly triggered with the same type of environment and setting yeah. and everything. Uh, whereas comedy or art, you're trying to create a singular phenomena that can't be replicated. It can be copied, it can be remixed, it can be rebooted, but ultimately, you're, you know, you're going to make a work that stands on its own in in some ways. So, you know, would you agree with that? And 
would you agree with the statement that art needs to lead science and not the other way around? I think what art is as a reflection of the human condition, huh. um, yeah. uh, that's how it started, whether it's cave paintings or, you know, uh, shadows on a wall. So what, what art does is allow us another way to look at life. Uh, that then what scientists do is try to unpack, well, what is the DNA of that, right? Or, you know, right. what's the phenomena going on underneath that? I think it's intriguing uh, to think uh, at times of, well, what's the science um, and what is the artistic expression of that science? Because what's happened over time is the best science is very difficult to communicate because it's extremely honest, which means sort of saying, well, we think in this situation we surmise and it could be prob problematic over here. You know, and that's why when you have someone like Malcolm Gladwell come along and talk about 10,000 hours and recognize that that, you know, it, it, he wasn't presenting the, the, uh, the idea in its fullest. And, and that research has also been, you know, looked at and with more scrutiny now. And I heard him defend this the other day in his podcast in a very sort of like, you know, offhanded way. I'm like, Malcolm, the, the problem is you're an incredibly good storyteller and the truth doesn't make for really great stories all the time because <laughs> there's so many caveats. The truth um, doesn't always lead to, yeah, blockbusters. Let's just say that. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I mean, because the, the truth is really murky and muddy and it's not clean and it's not Offensive. clear. Yeah. Um, it, it, yeah. You know, it's again, looking at the unblemished photos of any of us, it's like, is that what it looks like? And like, <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid that's what we look like. But that's also in the gritty areas is the places I like to play and I think they're fun. Uh, and so, you know, having worked now in, in with all these different academic communities, you know, the thing I, I, I strive to make them understand is, look, I get it. We want to be as close to the truth as possible. But, you know, if we can't say this in a way that could be understood, uh, it will not be enacted upon. And then why are you doing this? Why, why are you even wasting your time, right. uh, you know, learning these insights if they can't be used? Um, and so I really hope if I'm looking at the work I want to be doing for the next, you know, let's just say 10 years, it's going to be how do I make the ivory tower accessible. And I think we've got a really good medium for doing that. We have a comic voice uh, that we can apply to that. And we have these improvisational practices that can put the stuff in play. And, you know, if we can uh, get people, you know, 5% of, you know, any population to suddenly have this work at their fingertips and to use it in their lives, I think that's going to make, you know, huge differences. I, we said this the other day in a, in a meeting where we said, if we could improve listening by 2%, in every early childhood class in the city, do you think that would have an effect? Massive. And, Matt, right? Massive. So that's like that's doable. We can do that. Yeah. We just need to we just need to get off our asses, talk to the right people, and you know, and 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 get it going. Um, so yeah, that's the work I want to do. Very cool. And when it comes to life outside of work right now, if you get a chance to relax, I'm curious, what type of uh, fiction or nonfiction are you enjoying? Is it a TV series? Is it a book? What are your favorite mediums and what are you enjoying right now? Yeah, so I read so much for work and, and I used to be just fiction. So huge Don DeLillo fan, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Italo Calvino. Uh, now I read, I read basically two books a week of, of mostly nonfiction. So, and I love reading, so that, that that doesn't feel like work to me. So I'm watching the Ken Burns Country documentary right okay. now, um, which which I'm very much enjoying. I like to go see music. Um, and so I've got tickets to a Frank Turner concert uh, in a couple of weeks. Cool. And then my wife and I have this like incredible garden in our backyard in Chicago. And I've really sort of learned the joys of sort of sitting in the garden, play. I love music. So, you know, making a Spotify playlist drinking a bottle of wine and she's a great cook. Uh, so it's sort of communing with nature. Um, you know, all, the kids are out of the house. It's just her and I right now. Uh, and that's recent. And so we're just kind of learning like, Oh, how, how does, how does this work? So there's a little bit of, of guilty pleasure in that we're kind of able to sort of be uninterrupted in our garden with our music, with our wine, um, and not have to tend to little ones or, you know, other problems or driving, you know, kids around or that sort of thing. So that, and then, you know, get And the other thing I have to do is, because I don't want to sit around all the time, is push myself to take more coffees with people that I haven't seen in a while. Push myself to 
invite a couple over that, you know, we, and that's not something that we, we necessarily did a ton of before, but, you know, those relationships are important um, and, and this idea of maintaining, maintaining connection. So that's kind of my world. It sounds like a great way to recharge. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And uh, Kelly, final question here for anyone that's listening right now that either wants to come to a show, get involved, help out, follow your work or uh, yeah, just see what you're up to. Yeah. Um, what's the best way for them to get involved with you and everything and everyone at Second City? So our website is secondcity.com and, and the works division, which presently how, uh, houses me is secondcityworks.com. Uh, and you can subscribe to my podcast there. Uh, I'm on Twitter at KL Second City. I connect with everyone on LinkedIn unless you're trying to sell me something and then I tell you to go away. So you can find me on, on LinkedIn as well. So I'm, I'm out there. I'm really accessible. My email is on the um, website so people, people can find me. And, and this is, a, but I've been, again, more and more needing to sort of say to people like, look, if you've got a cool idea to collaborate on or you want to talk about some ideas, fantastic. If you are trying to sell me something, don't. <laughs> Just don't. So uh, that's, I shamed someone on LinkedIn the other day. and I wrote this whole article about the way that they like kept coming at me. And I'm like, no, I've told oh, you this. Yeah. 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 Kelly, thank you so much for being generous with your time. This has been an honor for me. A uh, big fan of your work and everything you do there. To everybody that's listening, uh, go check out Second City. Uh, yes. And I'm sure that's available everywhere books are. And yep. Kelly, we'll have to have you on again for round two at some point. I love it. Thanks, Chad. Awesome. Thanks. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, their customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, And if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.